Hello again, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm Tim Muma, and you're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. Now, joining us on the show, as always, is our expert, Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement. And she has 25 years experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, thanks for coming on the show again. No, thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to start off um, just to give listeners an idea of, of where we're going with this. Uh, you did recently write an article addressing a new OFCCP directive on gender identity and sex discrimination. Can you just give the listeners a quick summary of what exactly this entailed before we do get into more of the details? I, certainly. In January, I wrote an article saying that they ought to have a definitive statement that, in fact, transgender and gender identity is protected by OFCCP. And that came out of an article uh, where they were giving answers to the question that was put to them about whether it was coverage, and they just kept saying that it, they'll follow Title VII, but they never definitively said what they thought Title VII required them to do or that they, in fact, covered it. Well, finally, they have issued a directive. It was on, issued on August the 19th of this year, and they say specifically that OFCCP does protect workers from transgender and gender identity discrimination, which I think they ought to have done, and I'm glad to see that they have. <laughs> And you were right on the ball as far as that goes, and what, what we should have expected. <laughs> yes, I figured they had to do this at some point. I don't know why they even hedged on it, because it seemed to me pretty straightforward that they would have to take that position. But it, it's good, I think, that they have. So then what specifically, in what way does Title VII play a role, or how did it impact this in particular? I mean, were there certain facets of it that you felt this is why they went in this direction finally? Well, under Title VII, uh, the EEOC is the lead agency for employment discrimination prevention in the federal government. So they are the ones who standards and interpretations of Title VII are supposed to inform and be followed by the other agencies. Okay. And in 2012, the EEOC had a decision where they were very clear that the way they read Title VII, that discrimination on the basis of transgender status or gender identity issues was a form of gender discrimination, which is covered by Title VII. And there's an executive order, 12067, that requires coordination between the federal agencies. So my argument in January was that given that EEOC has taken this position, it's really the only place for OFCCP to go is to follow the EEOC and say, in fact, that that's how they would interpret gender discrimination, which is also prohibited by Executive Order 11246, which is what the OFCCP is charged with enforcing. Sure. So Title VII basically has driven this whole uh, discussion. And for years, it wasn't very clear because it didn't cover sexual orientation specifically under Title VII, right. that there was a lot of question marks about how do these types of things fit in or do they fit into gender discrimination. And over time, I think as society has changed, as people have looked at the law with a different eye, that it became clearer and clearer that basically when you're discriminating against a person because of their transgender status, it's because they're not meeting your expectations for people of that gender. Sure. Which means that they're actually a good fit for gender discrimination. But because of all this uncertainty, I think it was really important and it was an important decision for the EEOC to make, and I think it's also important for OFCCP to say specifically that, yes, we agree with the EEOC that this is covered. Well, as you mentioned, you know, obviously a little bit of a progression with this, hopefully, but there was also still a phrase in there that, that seemed, I don't know, you seem you seem to point it out as being a little interesting, and the phrase was uh, in that policy that they will continue to fully investigate and seek to remedy instances of sex discrimination because of gender identity or transgender status. 
What exactly does that mean to you? Is there proof of this continuing to fully investigate? Uh, just what does that phrase really say or, or speak to you? Well, when I looked at that, I'm thinking, continue. They, they haven't really been doing a whole heck of a lot of it. So I didn't, I mean, to me, it was almost as if, well, actually not almost as if, it appeared to, to try to suggest to the public that we've got this, we've been doing this the right way for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, don't worry about this. Don't even think about it. You know, it's just saying what we've always been doing, which, you know, I know that Washington is the home of spin. But this is a bit of a spin, and I didn't know why you needed to spin, because who would have expected OFCC to be doing but so much in this area anyway, given that the EEOC decision was only in 2012. Hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, someone who's not familiar with how these things come about and, how, you know, what they really mean when they say they'll continue to fully investigate may expect OFCCP and their compliance officers to have a depth of familiarity with this area that probably they will be surprised to find they don't have. Right. I, you know, I, I think, one, it would probably have been better to just acknowledge that this is not an area where they have a whole lot of, of uh, enforcement activity. In fact, I don't recall seeing a transgender case come across <laughs> uh, my desk in the 11 years and uh, 12 years I was there. Right. I had the biggest region, and I don't remember there being much discussion about it. You don't see any press releases concerning transgender cases. And, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One, the OFCCP is pretty much does class cases as much as they can, you know, pattern and practice. They're very uh, statistical driven. They don't do a whole lot of individual complaints. And mm-hmm. that's because there's a memorandum of understanding between the EEOC and OFCCP, wherein most individual cases are intended to be sent over to the EEOC where they have jurisdiction so they can invest in individual complaints. Now, OF does do some complaints, but it's not their bread and butter. It's not what they're used to doing. Mm-hmm. So. When you are looking at someone coming out to investigate this, it's an area they're not familiar with because there's not very many transgender cases that any of them would have ever seen. And uh, it's also not their comfort zone to do individual one-on-one discrimination cases. So to say that they're going to continue to fully investigate and seek to remedy, they didn't mention one time when they've actually remedied transgender discrimination sure. or they've actually remedied a gender identity case. And their level of, of comfort and familiarity with it is just not going to be that high. And I, I just I just thought it was misleading to write it that way. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it t- they will follow Title Seven. If they had run across some, they probably would have tried their best to, you know, follow what the EEOC was going to do. But they, they don't have a body of knowledge. They don't have a set of cases. A contractor can't go to a whole collection of decisions by OFCCP and try to figure out how they do this thing. It's just not going to be out there. Right. Well, I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the, the, the phrase or the term misleading. I think that uh, that's probably the best way to, to look at that as far as the phrasing. And as you said, maybe a little, a little bit of spin on that. Now, you mentioned, you know, obviously moving forward with these types of cases, the question comes about, and again, we're talking about the idea of transgender, gender identity. How are the OFCCP and EEOC planning on handling these types from what you know? Well, from what they say in the policy, OFCCP wants to hold on to the cases, uh, the transgender cases, the gender identity cases that happen to uh, come to its attention first. Okay. And EEOC presumably will handle the ones that come to their attention first. As I mentioned, there they, you know, there's this memorandum of understanding wherein most cases are supposed to be referred over if they're individual Title VII cases. Hmm. Well, apparently they want to make an exception here where they keep these Title VII cases. I can kind of see why they want to keep them because, first of all, they, you know, it's, their, it's their opportunity to start to establish some of the law and precedents in this area. Should they happen to get the case, they may not want to send it to EEOC so that they can further get ahead in this area. Right. Although they're not really competing technically, there is, you know, people like their turf. And EEOC 
no doubt doesn't want to give up what it can offer, and, and OF feels an obligation, especially with the new executive order that's specifically addressing this issue. Right. You know, it's not a time when they would want to be ceding these cases to anybody else. What that does is it raises a possibility that a contractor could be addressed from both agencies. So you've got to make sure that they know that the other one is there, which they should know, but sometimes, you know, Maybe you know before they know. <laughs> Let them know that there's not, you know, that they're that they're already having this to look at by the other agency. As they also have different things that they can do, because uh, the EEOC has the ability to require certain remedies in particular egregious cases that OFCCP doesn't have. Sure. But then OFCCP, under this new executive order amendment, well, actually it's amendments to the old executive order that were put in a new executive order. They are able to do some things relative to affirmative action that would not be what EEOC would do. So there, there is going to be, I think, some need between the agencies to kind of work it out. I don't know how far they're going to go with that. Mm-hmm. It depends on how the regulations are and whether they, you know, they're able to uh, come up with any new enforcement relationship so that you know, they cover this as much as they can. But I know at one point when they were talking about uh, you know, Title VII cases and when the MOU was being renegotiated several years ago, was trying to figure out is there any way that the compensatory and punitive damages part could be carried out by the EEOC if it happened to arise in a case that OFCP had had kept for one reason or another, just because they were trying to bring all of the enforcement tools to bear. As far as I know, that hasn't really worked out in practice, but these are the kinds of discussions that the agencies have previously had. So I would imagine in this situation that they will probably discuss with one another how they want to proceed to make sure that they're not coming to different conclusions because you happen to go through a different door. Right. And, uh, you know, you briefly touched on it there as far as um, what this relationship could mean for federal contractors. And we'll actually touch on that a little bit later. So um, just in going forward with some of this, the idea of, of what the directive is talking about, part of it suggests that transgender and gender identity discrimination be looked at as a standalone category. Now, for yourself, why, why does this matter if it does? And, and do you believe it should be separate from sex discrimination? Well, you know, it's, it was interesting to me that they made a point in the new directive of saying that this speaks only to transgender and gender identity right. discrimination as a form of gender discrimination and not to it being standalone, which made me wonder, okay, well, why do they draw this distinction between these two things? Hmm. As I was explaining why, they, uh, why this would constitute gender discrimination, that's basically, you just wouldn't have to bother to make that argument, but you get to the same place. Right. If, you know, if it's prohibited as a form of gender discrimination or standalone, it, there's not really a different set of proofs I don't think you would offer. You just wouldn't have to finish up by saying, and of course, this is gender discrimination, because <laughs> they're not meeting the stereotype. So you know, from the discrimination perspective, I think they, they pretty much overlap each other. From the affirmative action perspective, I think we have to see what the agency puts out. But I do think that that's where they may impose additional obligations on federal contractors relative to outreach and recruitment and that kind of thing that are, are more targeted toward this particular population than they would have you know, had before. I, I kind of suspect that they won't. Well, I actually can't see how they would just you know add it in mm-hmm. to the already required gender uh, efforts under affirmative action, because that's mainly thinking male-female. It doesn't really fit the, uh, the situation for transgender, even just because of the volume of people who would fall in the category. is very different than the volume of people falling, of course, into male and female. So, you know, I think that that may be a place where having this standalone under the new amendments will make a big difference. Okay. But from a legal perspective, on the other, I think it's probably not as much as it would be. One thing, though, I had thought about, and I was going to say it at the end, but I'll say it now, is that uh, when it comes to looking at your policy, say, for not, uh, anti-harassment, the fact that you have anti-harassment on the basis of gender may not be viewed as quite enough 
they may want to see you have specifically that you won't discriminate against people because of transgender and gender identity. Interesting. You know, so even though they're, you know, they have agreed that gender would cover it. Right. From the employer's perspective, it they may need to do what what the uh, OFCC has just done, which is to be more specifically explicit that yes, in fact, we don't condone or permit this kind of discrimination either. I think that's a good little, uh, you know, tip for the employers out there just to, you know, you can't be too well protected in, in that case. And I think I feel like that's what you're getting at. Just make sure you really are covered in that case because uh, it's not going to hurt you in any way. Yeah, I don't think it's going to hurt you. And I think that if you don't have that specifically in there, perhaps people will read something into that, mm, that, sure. you know, the, that, that you meant to cover all these things. And if you intended to cover it, you would have been more explicit about the coverage, which is kind of, you know, there's arguments to be had on either side. You know, how lawyers keep getting paid. But I, <laughs> I do think... From a, if I were, you know, recommending something, although none of this is really legal advice, but if I were recommending what to do or if it was my company and I was trying to figure out what to do, I would put it in there explicitly because that way you show that, look, we have put people on notice that, you know, they're not to, to engage in discrimination on this basis. And there's also, it's clear that we have a remedy or a process internally by which people who felt that they have been discriminated on the basis of transgender or gender identity status have a clear way to bring that to uh, the appropriate person's attention and have it redressed. So you have some kind of actual avenue that, that a, an employee who felt that they were you know, discriminated against would be able to look in your policies and in your statements and say, okay, this is what I need to do because this is what I think has happened to me. And that, to me, puts the company in a much stronger position than if you have nothing there that traditionally it hasn't been you know, very clear to anyone that it was covered you know, your person might continue to feel like they were subjected to something and they didn't know where to go because you didn't you didn't specifically say that that was covered. So I think with all this new policy out there, it's probably prudent to make sure that it's clear, yes, you do uh, prohibit discrimination or you don't condone it in your business. And if you felt you were discriminated against in these spaces, here's what you do so that we can fix that problem. As you said, not legal advice, but I think some very good insight into uh, into how that would work out for the employers on that side of things. Now, based on your experience and your knowledge of, of really the inner workings, um, in the article you also mentioned some, some thoughts you had on what federal contractors can expect from OFCCP moving forward again with this directive and when it comes to these types of cases specifically. What would you point to as being some uh, maybe emphasized areas or again, some, some of the items that will be potentially happening moving forward? Well, of course, this is Sandy's crystal ball, but <laughs> having, having been in the uh, trenches for a long time, when you have a new area of enforcement, of course, you want to show that you're using that new authority and that you're remedying the problem that the authority mm-hmm. was intended to remedy. So I would think, especially the early cases that they might get about transgender, gender identity discrimination, if they find that there has been discrimination and if they, in fact, remedy it, that would be something they probably want to highlight. So I would imagine that they would you know, advise the field that they are actively looking for these things, that right. it, when they're on site, when they're, when they're visiting, that if they look at the records, see if there's been any complaints along these lines, make yourself available if somebody wants to you know, raise this issue with you, you know, make sure that they have some kind of educational component that covers this when they're doing their EEO training. So I would imagine there's going to be a lot of looking to see how much have contractors been proactive in making sure that this kind of discrimination doesn't occur and making sure their managers and their staff understand, you know, that it's prohibited uh, by the federal government. So that I would think people would start looking a little bit more at. So if you're putting together, you know, training packages and plans going forward, uh, if you haven't included transgender and gender identity as part of the topics of, you know, how people are supposed to be treated in this category, how to avoid discrimination, what discrimination looks like, you know, how to remedy it, those kinds of things could be 
I think, well incorporated in your training going forward, just so that when they're looking to see what have you been doing, they'll see that you've been active in this area. So I think they'll be given a high profile. I think they'll probably, if they find such a case, they'll want to have press. Right. The press has to be approved internally. Usually a small one-on-one case might not get the kind of press that you know a big old class action would get. But <laughs> if it's a new area like this, it may get more press than it would otherwise get. So I'm thinking if there is a case, you don't want to be the one who's the headline. So <laughs> that's, an, that, that's why I think it's very important, even though there's not like a huge transgender and gender identity population, you know, in terms of non-traditional gender identity, I still think it's worthwhile because if they find one, you know, it's going to probably get get a lot more attention, especially at this stage of the development of the law in this area. Right. And as I mentioned before, I think the affirmative action piece is going to have to be worked out. They didn't discuss that very much when the new executive order added that authority to the OFCCP, but they're going to have to come up with some way that they effectuate affirmative action. Figuring out how that's going to be done is going to, you know, take a little doing. But I think that, as I said earlier, I don't think they're going to just say, well, it's, you know, just considered to be part of our current gender-based affirmative action. They'll probably have something separate. And I think, uh, you know, contractors should be on the lookout for that to see what OFCCP puts out in terms of regulations to implement. I think they'll probably have to tra- provide some training because, as I mentioned, compliance officers don't do a lot of one-on-one cases in a complaint. And also, compliance officers, like everybody else, may need some sensitivity training in an area where they're not usually familiar with dealing sure. with people who are transgender and the like. So I think those kinds of things we'll probably see. I know there was a, um, a recorded seminar that EEOC did at one point on transgender identity, which was uh, very good. And OFCCP has probably had some of that, but I think they'll probably want to make sure that the, the, all of the field is made familiar uh, with how the law works in that area and also how to interact and you know treat people so that you don't wind up saying or doing something yourself as an enforcement person that's uh, less than sensitive just because you're you know you're no more familiar than anybody else with how to handle things. So right. hopefully that will that will happen. The only thing is that because the cases won't come up that often, you almost feel like you need training again when one actually does come up. So hopefully they'll have some mechanism for refreshing compliance officers when they when they run against an actual case. And they'll probably want those cases to be brought to the attention of the national office too, just because they would be keeping an eye on how enforcement in this area is going. Right. Whereas that would not normally be the case. The, you know, usually the field would just take care of most of those things. And from the perspective of the federal contractor, I think at the same time, given that this is an area that will be of interest to both the EEOC and OFCCP, to the extent that the uh, the companies have counsel that is providing training or instruction to them, I think that they need to also focus on, on ensuring that they understand how non-discrimination is supposed to work, that we're not talking about starting with a standard deviation, now you explain a legitimate non-discriminatory reason. Now we're looking pr- most of the time, I would think, at one-on-one types of situations where the person says, until they knew I was transgender, they treated me one way, and now they treated me differently, like mm-hmm. it happened in Macy, or that they treated me differently uh, than they treated somebody else who wasn't transgendered, and here's where you know, I think the discrimination occurred. Those kinds of cases are ones where you really do need to be able to identify who's your comparator. You know, what is your evidence that shows the intent that is you know, necessary for disparate treatment? You probably won't have the volume for a disparate impact. So for most of these cases, I would think it would be a one-on-one disparate treatment type of situation. It'll require a little reorientation of the contract, the, the compliance officer's thinking to have them focused on well, who made the bad decision. You know, what exactly was the action that showed the discrimination as opposed to, well, we had, you know, this affirmative action year and you've sprung three standard deviations. I don't have to point out who did the hiring discriminating. I just know that overall you have a pattern in practice. This requires a lot more specific fact information about an incident that uh, constitutes discrimination. So I think from the contractor's perspective, 
they need to be aware of what their burden of proof is and what the agency's burden of proof is and not just, you know, go like they usually do, explaining their standard deviations or explaining their behavior without having the agency explain what exactly is it you're accusing me of. Sure. So I think that that's important for them to know. I doubt that there'll be a large volume just because I don't think there's a large volume of people in the category. Okay. Uh, but I, I do think that there's a possibility, as far as I know, and you don't always know, that uh, there weren't any transgender people on staff at the OFCP when I last I, I heard. But I would imagine that, that actively recruiting somebody with some expertise in this area might happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't know what their hiring plans are. But, you know, a lot of the time, uh, if you have an area that the agency as a whole is not that familiar with, it may seek someone who has some background in, in uh, being active in, in uh, protecting uh, this class of people. Sure. As far as expanding outreach and education, there's always been a big push for outreach and education. Under this administration, it's directed a lot toward potential victims of discrimination, so toward workers, whereas the previous administration was directed a lot toward contractors to make sure they understood how to be compliant. Interesting. So I would imagine that this would happen also, you know, more of an outreach to the transgender and gender identity community so that they could either help people to understand what is and is not lawful, Sometimes that results in uh, people filing complaints who might not have thought of it before, might not have realized that they could. Mm-hmm. Or it may be that, you know, because they're out in that community, it, you know, if there's a re- number of, of different people who raise the same company, it may, you know, point them in the direction of companies where this could be an area of concern. So those are the kinds of things that might happen. If you have an ongoing positive relationship with the transgender gender identity activist community, you probably won't be one of those people that is brought to the attention of someone uh, who they need to be concerned about. So to the extent you're doing outreach and, you know, and recruitment, uh, it doesn't hurt to you know, make yourself a good reputation uh, in that particular community. And I think, uh, as we talked a little bit about earlier, that once the regulations for OF go out, the way it works is that they will be coordinated with EEOC before they get issued. Um, they should see them and be able to weigh in on them. And I don't know if they'll actually have a literal coordination component. I know mm-hmm. under the ADA they did have coordination regulations. Here they may not go that far, but they, you know, there may be at least some discussion between the two agencies of how they want to go forward and you know, what their thoughts are about enforcement and, and what would be appropriate. So I, I would keep a lookout for that just to see if they, if they issue anything jointly or you know, what the, the new regulations may say, if anything, about cases and who, who investigates you know, what. The other, other side of that is that it, if EEOC is getting cases, since OF may have additional affirmative action obligations and some of the respondents in an EEOC case may in fact be federal contractors, the EEOC uh, and OF may want to inform one another uh, you know, of these cases that they have right. just so that if there's a component of affirmative action that's perhaps not being complied with that only OF really could enforce, that maybe there would be some way that that part of uh, the investigation would be sh- shared in a way with the, with the OFCCP. And likewise, with the compensatory and punitive issue, you know, some kind of way where if maybe the case looks like it would be right for compensatory and punitive, that perhaps in that particular case, they would you know, figure out a way for EEOC to, you know, have uh, a stake in the case so that they could perhaps pursue those damages. That hasn't, like I said, worked out as well as people kind of thought it might. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, would, I would imagine that's not going to necessarily be a deterrent from trying. Sure. So sure. You know, those are some of the things that I think may happen following this uh, director says. And the final thing is, usually when they have areas of enforcement, you know, they have internal program plans, which is that the field has to do certain number of things in order to be rated for their performance. So I would imagine since they've got this new area of enforcement that they will somehow specifically 
put it in uh, a goal, some kind of something having to do with gender identity, transgender status, and the, even the, the new authorities, the other new authorities under the uh, amendments to the executive order, directly into the program plan. And I think actually that's something that the public would probably learn from if they look at it, because they, they were very detailed about what they wanted back in the day. So I'm thinking <laughs> they probably are even more detailed now. Sure. And there will be some specific objectives given to the uh, to the field workers, the regional you know the regional offices, and the uh, I don't know if it go down the compliance officer level, but it, it might that uh, deal specifically with enforcement under these new areas. Well, uh, Sandy, I mean, this is why you're clearly the expert. Uh, I mean, touching on a lot of those points there that you said, uh, you know, just based on your experience and, and understanding the way things work, um, you know, I think hopefully giving our listeners a heads up as to what they could expect uh, as we look to wrap up. I always like to to ask you at the end here, any final maybe you know words of, of wisdom for the, the federal contractors and employers out there just to make sure they're prepared and protect themselves? Again, not in any way, uh, not in any shady way of protecting yourselves, but doing things the right way and being prepared. What would you offer up as any final suggestions? Well, this is some of, some of the suggestions so far is that on, uh, in your policies where you have anti-harassment policies or anti-discrimination policies, I would specifically highlight these areas, you know, name them, you know, don't just assume that people will know Title VII covers them, you know, put it, put that in there. When you do your training, I would include these topics in the training if you haven't included them before. If you do have a sizable population of people that would uh, identify uh, as transgender or in gender identity, if they're if there is a desire on their part to have affinity groups and you allow affinity groups for other areas, then allow it for this area too. Likewise, when you're doing your outreach, if you have some specific outreach toward these communities, I think it puts you a little bit ahead uh, when OFCCP comes to see you know, whether or not you're compliant. And uh, you know, since they are going to be outreaching to the, probably some of the groups that are most active in these areas when it comes to enforcement, some of the community groups and organizations, if you are familiar with them and they're familiar with you and they know that you are a welcoming, non-discriminatory, fair employer, you know, that helps with your reputation as it's communicated back to the agencies mm-hmm. when they do reach out to these groups. So these are some things that, you know, they don't really don't cost so much. It's just it's almost in a way you're developing your outreach and your uh, mechanisms for enforcing fairness in your workplace relative to, to transgender and gender identity. At the same time, the agency's doing it. So if they see you're doing this, you've hopped on it, you know, you're making those kinds of efforts to ensure your policies aren't discriminatory. Look through and see if you got any, you know, problems that have been reported to you, or if there's anything in the way you do your policies that would impact in any adverse way these populations. Of course, deep six those things <laughs> and uh, <laughs> substitute for them things that will actually uh, it, make it easy for someone who perhaps might feel like there's some discrimination or there's someone that's treating them, uh, you know, the way a way that they shouldn't in the workplace. They will know exactly that the company doesn't condone that, that they have a method of redress, and that here is how I take care of that so that it can be handled internally. Because a lot of times, you have an effective enforcement mechanism within the company, they won't even go file hmm. uh, with the federal agencies. It, you know, a lot of times, it's because they don't know what else to do. Right. So if you have some kind of mechanism set up, and it's known to your people, you know, this is what you need to do, you may be able to take care of some of these issues before they become a big legal issue with the federal government. All right. Well, on those final notes, we will wrap up this edition of Government Compliance. Once again, chock full of detailed information that our listeners can definitely use in their own professional situations. And uh, once again, we've been joined by our expert, Sandy Ziegler. Sandy, thanks again for coming on. Again, uh, some great insight and definitely a help for our listeners out there. Thank you so much for having me. 
And of course, if you want to reach out to us, if you have any comments or suggestions, go ahead and shoot an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. You can also find us on Twitter at the LJN. We'd love to hear from you there as well. For everyone here at LJN Radio, I'm your host, Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.